Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. That way you will remain updated. If you want to be in touch with me, you can do that via Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can go to the Sound Moment page on Facebook and you can email me at pat at soundthemoment.com. This show will always remain free to download and listen to, but if you do feel like supporting me and helping me with covering the costs of production and hosting, you can do that via the Patreon campaign, patreon.com forward slash sound of the moment. And there you can make monthly or one-off donations. And thank you so much to those of you who have already done that. This is episode number 27 for the 5th of November 2018. Saxophonist Efraim Trujillo is my guest. His band, The Preacher Men, have just released their second album. It's entitled Blue, and we'll start the show today with a piece from it called Lost and Nowhere to be Found.
My guest today is saxophonist Ephraim Trujillo. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ephraim. Thank you, uh, Pat. Um, yeah, I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit. I can't be sure that everybody listening is going to be familiar with your work and with you and your career and stuff. So maybe tell me a bit about who you are, what you do, all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm a saxophonist based in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I started off as a clarinetist, okay. classical clarinet. And I've been living since uh, the 80s of the last century in Amsterdam yeah. and studied at the uh, Conservatory of Amsterdam. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, was that already Amsterdam? Was that not Hilversum at that time? Well, I was actually um, one of the first people that studied jazz music in Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. So this was before Hilversum and Amsterdam yeah. uh, became they one. combined, yeah. And it was really interesting because in those days... Uh, Amsterdam was really avant-garde, really. Yeah. Contemporary music and Hilversum was more bebop-based. Mm-hmm. And that's also the reason why I chose to study in Amsterdam. Okay, yeah. So you were more interested in the in what was happening here. Right, yeah. yeah. Who were the teachers, actually, at that time? Um, well, there were several teachers, and I learned a lot from all teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michel Bengelberg yeah, was sure. arranging, mm-hmm. arranging teacher. Um, Arnold Dojewirt yeah. was my um, ensemble teacher. Yeah. Uh, and some some other teachers, but actually all of them had like something special mm-hmm. uh, to, yeah. to tell me. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I feel like that is kind of, there was kind of a golden generation at that point that, that was happening, like in terms of getting lessons from Michel Mengelberg must have been kind of pretty special. I mean, I obviously he passed away sadly and and I only got to catch him like a couple of shows but um that feels like the sort of uh the tradition of what like dutch jazz and improvised music like he feels like such a huge figure somehow he, yeah he was he was really inspiring and uh, lessons were really special this was of course a really different age where um teaching and lessons weren't so structured like nowadays. Yeah. So teachers also all had their own methods. Mm-hmm. And uh, some, sometimes they were like, um, you really had to know the teacher and read into him. For instance, Michel Mengelberg, he would be um, behind his desk smoking. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't give you any assignments. So yeah. if, you didn't, if you didn't come up with anything, he wouldn't do anything. Wow. So he was just there and you would go by, uh, bring your... Your, your work, your yeah. music. Your, and he would really, you know, look into it and really start from the from scratch, really the beginning. He, his, his field was arranging there. Yeah. Of course, he's also really a composer. Yeah, sure. So he would start from the beginning, like uh, really asking you questions like what, you know, what do you want to say with it? Why mm-hmm. do you write this kind of thing in it? And not so much technically like um, maybe a C-sharp would be nice on top because it's seen yeah. as the ninth or whatever, not yeah. in that field at all. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so like, is that something that you have, uh, do you feel like that has persisted in the, the way you approach writing music to this day? Like, is that something you... I definitely think that the teachers I had in those days really influenced my, um, yeah, me as a musician. Yeah, sure. For instance, also, uh, Arnold Doyewert has been a big influence on me. Yeah. And I guess on everyone that studied those days. Yeah. Because also with him, he was our uh, ensemble teacher. Mm-hmm. And... I remember I was really first shocked because I was expecting really the teacher type that would be there <laughs> and count off the music yeah. and or would stop the band and say, hey, no, this is not the right tempo. It should be yeah. this and not this or whatever. Yeah, He wouldn't do those kind of things. But what he did, I remember something that really, you know, had a big influence on me, although it was really super simple. <laughs> um, he would always you know, go for a coffee and just let us do something. <laughs> and then come back and exactly pinpoint on, you know, the issue that was going on. Yeah. So he came into the room while we were playing a song. And I remember my schoolmate, Anto Goudsmaat, out in Goudsmaat, yeah. right? He was doing a solo. And after that, it was my turn to solo. Mm-hmm. And after, well, the song was over and Arnold looked at me and he put his hands together, you know, like, 
Yeah, you know, Ephraim, after that kind of guitar solo, you know, I don't think you need a, a, a sax solo at all. You know, just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is something like, a, you know, because we were really busy with, uh, you know, technical things. What do you want to play? Do you play this kind of scale? What kind of uh, build up in your solo? But then, oh yeah, maybe, you know, <laughs> a bigger thing is like, do you actually need a saxophone solo there? Yeah. And he would really be, uh, have those kind of, Uh, answers to your yeah. uh, questions. Cool. Yeah, that's another one of the guys. That I, d I mean, obviously, I I, I know him uh, fairly well from from the scene and stuff. But he um, was he was just retiring from teaching bass at the time. Like I I came just too late to get bass lessons from him. Yeah, um, yeah. I you wish, of I course, being a bass player, and it would have been. Yeah, no, it would have been Very great. He's obviously he's still quite active with the Bim House and and all that stuff. I mean, I think that's probably the main the main legacy that he has besides the teaching mm -hmm. is that he's such yeah. a like important figure over there. True. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, well, we could go in all kinds of directions with the conversation, but maybe we should focus in a bit um, specifically on um, the record that just came out that you are um, currently promoting and touring and stuff with uh, with your band, The Preacher Men. Uh, yes. So it's an organ trio. Can you first of all, like, tell me a, a couple of things? First of all, like, where does the name come from? What, like, that's a really boring question. But like, what, what was the the idea behind, like, what is it about the organ trio that appeals to you and and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So it's uh, several things. It, this all started when I, I was doing a, a radio show for years for Radio Six, yeah, and national radio. And that was just a great opportunity. We got a chance to make this live show every week. Mm -hmm. And there were guests there yeah. uh, every week again. You were actually there as well. I did that once, yeah. You yeah, did yeah. it uh, as well. And we had some big international uh, guests coming over. And the concept was really cool. We could jam with everyone each week. And well, sometimes... It worked out, it was a great uh, session, and sometimes, well, it didn't really work out, but the magic was that it was always live yeah. and uncensored. Yeah. One day, there was this band with uh, Rob Mostert, Hammond player, mm -hmm. and Chris Streck on drums, yeah. and I knew them, and we had occasionally played in other formations. But then the three of us were there together, with singer uh, Charlotte Coppola as well, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was really nice to work together also because organ, an organ trio, uh, the organ player plays uh, foot bass yeah. and keys. Yeah, so yeah. with a trio, you're already a band. Yeah. This was sort of something that we were looking for, um, yeah, and for multiple reasons. Uh, just because um, a small ensemble just makes it easier to for everyone to sort of have a big influence on the music. Mm -hmm. You're not a, a tiny uh, uh, part of the music, but you're a big part. Yeah. And also, of course, because you're more flexible with a trio. Yeah. I mean, you, you know the problem with putting agendas together. <laughs> yeah, we all make sure. it. So we thought this is nice. We should do it more often. But then we also thought, you know, an organ trio, saxophone, organ drums, there are so many of them. And... We don't want it to be just a jam band. Mm. So I was thinking of this and I thought, well, you know, we need like a good name that covers the music and also like a concept. It should be like really in one direction with the music. Yeah. And then I thought Preacher Man uh, refers to the gospel side of the music. Yeah. But also I was thinking a bit, uh, um, you know, a, a preacher is in the church and he's trying to um, um, get people towards, you know, mm -hmm. God and yeah. trying to convince them. Yeah. And I thought, well, in music, actually, that's also what we do, you know. We're there to tell a story and we want people to listen to us. So yeah. we're sort of preachers. That's what we are. Yeah. I guess it's sort of a bit in the tradition of the idea of the jazz messengers, right? Like the that they're coming in and trying to bring the good word of jazz to the people. Actually, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, this is the this is the second album that you guys have come out with. It's called Blue. Um, can you tell me a bit about? There's there's a lot of things to talk about about it. But um, first of all, can you tell me a bit about the the choice of repertoire that you guys came up with? I know that it's mostly uh, things that you wrote. 
uh, but it's all somewhat based in the idea of the blues, right? Right, yeah. Well, actually, I, w I was um, sort of thinking, so the first, first CD always has like, it's the first CD. It yeah. has a story, right? Mm -hmm. But then I thought the second CD can't just be a selection of songs again, you know, then it, what's the need of the second one? Yeah. Especially nowadays where, you know, um, not so many people buy CDs and it's more like, well, you, you sell them on concerts, but it's also promotional. Yeah. So I thought, mm, I'm, I'm really uh, sort of, I, w I was always like, like uh, very interested in this concept of a concept album. You know, an album which has like, all the songs are connected. Well, we know um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club. Yeah, band. sure. Bee Gees made a, a fantastic uh, concept album. So many people. Yeah, did. yeah. Um, I thought, oh, it would be nice if everything's connected. And then while I was a sort of uh, uh, busy with thinking what kind of direction that would go, I thought, ah, maybe the bluesy side of jazz would be really nice with this trio. Mm -hmm. And while I was uh, thinking about that, just so, sort of songs just came to mind. And actually, at first I had some other songs written for the album, which were more like songs with a lot of chord changes, uh, different sections in the, in the music. Mm -hmm. Then I thought, oh, these songs don't really fit into this concept of blues, where you basically want to be uh, around one um, center tone. Yeah. So it, every song should be in one key let's say and it goes around it mm -hmm. but it can so, sort of transpose to another key that's not yeah naturally bluesy yeah sure cool and so yeah, i'm i'm always interested in the I, I mean i don't know how much the how much the the listeners of this are familiar with the idea of what actually the blues represents but i'm always interested in the evolution of how like jazz musicians perceive the blues throughout their career because it seems to me like the blues starts off as probably the first song that you learn when you're learning to improvise and learning to play jazz. And there's the idea of, hey, here's the blue scale and you can just play that over this form and it's going to work. And everybody remember it's 12 bars and, and you know, it's it has a certain simplicity to it. And at the same time, uh, it, it sort of goes through stages, right? Like you go from, hey, this is all I can do to, hey, this is what I'm comfortable with to there's also like a, obviously a, a historic kind of, uh, connotation to it and like going through all the way back to the roots of it through bebop through modern stuff like the blues has just been like this through line yeah um it, what is that something that you relate to the idea of like throughout your career the blues has changed in a sense and c can you maybe trace that path somehow yeah exactly and and actually so so the whole uh idea of this album started me making me think about those things. Mm -hmm. And also because I thought if you do something with the blues, you really have to know what the music is about uh, because it's just not a music, it's not only a music form, but it was created uh, by people that were in, well, difficult situations. Yeah. And this music was also for them uh, a way to deal with their um, circumstances mm -hmm. and... So I thought, you know, it's, it's good to know something more about the blues. So actually I started uh, sort of investigating the roots of the blues, which brings you to uh, Mississippi Delta, yeah. of course, you know, uh, and, and the plantations where uh, first blues singers started to uh, accompany themselves with uh, homemade instruments yeah. because they didn't have guitars or pianos, mm -hmm. but they had, well, of course, boss board and one strands homemade uh, basses and guitars that they yeah. had. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, uh, as you refer to the 12 bar blues, I sort of um, discovered that in, in at first this blues was not uh, limited to 12 bars. Yeah, it was sure. just limited to the story that had to be told. Mm -hmm. And so I also tried that a bit on this record to be bluesy, but not uh, necessarily be, be in 12 bars, but approach the blues from another side. Yeah, no, it's true. It feels like, I mean, obviously we learn as we begin studying jazz, we learn the 12 bar blues as like the form, but then you later on figure out, hey, there's a lot more to this. And it feels to me like the blues is almost, 
it's almost akin to say like the sonata form or something like where you you state a thing and then you restate it a fourth up and like there's a kind of yeah uh, there's a connotation there that I I find interesting yeah 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 um what is the so how was the actual compositional process because you say that you you dove into like the more like the roots of the blues and trying to find a kind of uh, a through line more in the feeling than in maybe the forms and things. But like, what what does the composing look like for you? Is it something that you do behind the piano? Is it like a habit that you have, or is it, yeah? Um, well, in, before in the old days, I had like a piece of paper with me, mm-hmm. and like ideas would come at most awkward moments. No, like like <laughs> when you're when you're in the shop and you have to pay, and then suddenly there's something and. Oh, Wait a moment! I have to write it down, and you write it on the <laughs> on the coupon that you get. You yeah. Know? And nowadays, with my phone, actually, I also get these ideas on the bicycle. Yeah. And I stop and sing it in the phone. Yeah. And also give my, uh, myself some directions that I'm like, uh, okay, and then go to uh, uh, C major, and from there to you know, I would sort of tell, give mm. myself a, a little storybook. Yeah. And later I listen to it. I'm, I'm really like, what do I mean? Or, or like, <laughs> that really sounds strange, you know. I, I didn't do that, did I? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the process usually with me is not behind the piano. I'm obviously not a piano player. Yeah, sure. And I usually start with rhythm and melody. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, well, a lot actually with a pulse or something like that. That's, yeah. I guess, my interest comes mm-hmm. a bit more from that side um, than really from the harmony side. Yeah, that's interesting. Look, you just said two things that I'd like to dwell on. Like, first of all, um, the idea of the melody and specifically that you're singing it into a recorder, like the idea of like the vocal quality of melody. Like, I think that's also something that like is very related to the idea of the blues that like the human like voice is the first instrument and all that stuff. Right. Um, I... And then the other thing is the idea of danceability. Like I don't, I, I, I feel like that's a through line in pretty much all your work is that there's something kind of joyful and, and danceable about the stuff that you write and, and, and make. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful, like that you, if you can touch upon those, those two ideas somehow. Uh, I know there's also, you also feature a vocalist on the record and like his, how is that vocal quality something that, that is important to you? Well, it, it's true that actually... Um if for me, you know, so I played the saxophone, so I could play all sorts of uh, things. But sort of, sort of, uh, it feels to me. I, I always thought, you know, that actually, m- me being a saxophone player, I'm a singer as well. Mm-hmm. I sing through the instrument, and um, as a saxophonist, you have the same role as a singer would have, yeah. and depending on the kind of ensemble you're in. Mm-hmm. But so I always thought that my melodies should be, uh, well, they should be singable as well. Yeah. So I would never start uh, writing a melody on the saxophone, but always, you know, thinking and singing it and then play it on the saxophone. And sometimes actually when I play it on the saxophone, I think, ah, this is really not a good key for saxophone. This this is a focal key. Mm -hmm. And after we sort of rethink that. Um, So that's true. Yeah. 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 No, that's interesting. I think that's probably also adds to the other aspect of that is the relatability of it. Like the idea that as an audience member, you don't need to understand the mechanics of playing the saxophone to relate to the melodies because you can sing them. Right? True. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, what is it about like pulse and danceability that appeals to you so much? Like it, it seems like we've we've gone, we've reached a point where with, there's multiple directions that jazz and improvised music have gone into, and like whether it's over-complexifying the rhythm, which is probably what I'm most guilty of most of the time, or whether it's uh, like trying to like do away with rhythm or focus on other aspects of the music. But mm. it, it it's obvious that jazz is a rhythmic form yeah. of music originally, and and that yeah. is something that you obviously really like take to heart. Yeah. Um, how like has that always been a through line for you? Have you always been like fascinated by the idea of rhythm? It's that is really um, sort of. The basis how I started playing, and it's well, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to call, I don't want to talk about my good sides, like, but but let me talk about, let me let me say something about my my uh, weak points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started actually playing classical clarinet, 
and played uh, in in like a brass band and and stuff. Uh, six, seven years old, eight, nineteen. Mm-hmm. And I had a teacher, and she she sort of you know I was like uh, I really liked music. I had a passion for music, mm-hmm. but I wasn't the best student on classical clarinet. Okay, I would play these. Uh, Etudes that she gave me, yeah. like, uh, and I was always playing them in a certain rhythm and in a pulse. Mm-hmm. And then she said, "No, but you have to breathe here, and you have to. Uh, it needs to have like waves here, all these kind of things to talk about this. You know, when yeah. you uh, put everything under one um, phrase. And with me, it was always I would play these things, and it was always like. You know, I had this pulse going on, mm-hmm. which was not good for that kind of music. Yeah. Um, so I could play these, um, these, these, uh, yeah, these songs, these tunes, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. I wasn't the best at it. So at a certain point, she actually said, "Siska, uh, Tevai," she mm-hmm. said, "Maybe you should play jazz music because <laughs> you really like some kind of uh, pulse behind it." And uh, I was already listening to uh, jazz music because my father likes, uh, uh, wow, you know, really uh, uh, all kinds of music, but but also jazz music. And we were listening to John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, and uh, Ornette Coleman. Mm -hmm. So she suggested maybe that's more your kind of music. Mm -hmm. Well, then I started playing that. Then sort of it seemed like clarinet was maybe also not the right instrument and saxophone fitted me better and um, so I think from the beginning I am interested in pulse and I actually I don't know if you do that but I remember when I was a child I would sort of uh, play my my songs in my head when I was 11 12 while I was walking and then I would play them on the beat Mm -hmm. and then also try them oh what if I do dee do I was playing simple songs and do dee do dee do dee and then and playing around with that. That's something mm-hmm. that just interested me from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like the idea of finding rhythm in nature is definitely something that's always appealed to me. Mm. Like the the idea that things are cyclical both on a grand scale and on a short scale. Right. And then the idea of like polyrhythms, like that you've got two things, you've got a clock on the wall and at the same time you've got, you know, the speed at which you're walking or whatever. That's yeah. always something that I found interesting. Yeah. Um, and the way they relate to each other and don't relate to each other and that kind of stuff. So that, nerdy stuff. It's definitely nerdy, <laughs> undeniably nerdy, yeah. but it's interesting uh, that, yeah. that, that's a, that seems to be a common thing that people have. Yeah. Um, can you, um, to, to get back to the, the Preacher Men specifically, can you like speak to your bandmates uh, a bit? Like Obviously, you've, you've said who they are, but can you maybe speak a bit about them as individuals and as musicians? Like, uh, Yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, Hammond player Rob Mostert mm-hmm. has always been an organ player, and he played also as a child uh, organ. Yeah, that's pretty unusual, right? Like, it's so interesting to have somebody who comes from the organ and stays there. Like, it's so common for you start off as the piano player and then, you know, you figure out that you don't need a bass player if you learn to play organ. (laughs) You get twice as much money maybe or twice as many gigs, I don't know. But, like, that's always been a thing, but evidently it's... Yeah, well, in Holland, of course, you have a lot of people that start off on organ and then they play, like, uh, all kinds of music, but, you know, folk music, Dutch folk music. And but usually these people don't get interested in jazz music. This is really like a different scene. Mm-hmm. In his case, he went to conservatory. That was uh, Alkmaar in those yeah. days. Doesn't exist anymore now. It's Haarlem. Mm-hmm. It used to be a full conservatory, and he studied and also you know um, jazz piano. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later on, it seemed like you know being a, a, a Hammond player with foot bass, which there are not too many of them that yeah. can do that. It's really an advantage if you if you can do that. Then yeah, that's really uh, yeah. There's there's a lot of possibilities there. Yeah, and um, and I guess this was also his passion. So he sort of went back to uh, just playing Hammond organ and the foot bass. Also teaching uh, piano actually, mm-hmm. but his main instrument is uh, Hammond and foot bass. Oh, he played with many people. He has his own band, Rob Mostert Hammond Group. Yeah. 
And well, the last three years we've been playing a lot with the Bridgerman. Yeah, sure. Well, Kerstrick I've known for years uh, because, well, he's a bit older than me, but we studied um, at mm-hmm. the same moment. That's the beginning of the 90s. I think he studied in Hilversum, but if I'm not right, Chris, you should let me know. <laughs> yeah. And we played then like 30 years ago or whatever as, yeah. as young kids. We used to jam together, did a few projects together. Never had a band together, but I always liked his playing really a lot because he's got this really nice deep groove and a good backbeat really yeah. uh, the right player for this kind of music where, where you do the New Orleans kind of style uh, but the old R&B kind of style you know backbeat style yeah uh, combined with jazz yeah no definitely I mean Chris is great like that shuffle thing he really like right. nails it somehow yeah. uh, this so there's a there's another thing that uh, that obviously strikes you immediately as you listen to the record, which is that it's gone from being purely a saxophone, uh, organ, drum trio to having a couple guests. Right. Uh, can you speak a bit about first of all the idea of inviting people to join you? Like what? Where did that come from? Who are the guests? How did you pick them? Um, all of that. Yeah. So I thought a second album would be nice to have a guest, also have a bit of a change of uh, of, of sounds. Mm-hmm. And the first one I thought of was uh, Michael Farikamp. He's a trumpet player. Yeah. And I played a lot with him in the 90s. Uh, we, we were in a band together called Frafra Sound. And yeah. we did like a mixture between jazz, African music, and South American music, mm-hmm. uh, Suriname music. Yeah. And we traveled a lot. And I always thought that our sounds really blend well together. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and, he, and and what I like about him is also the roughness in his playing. You know, it's, mm. it's you know, he will when when he plays a melody, each time it's different. It's it, it's it always has and like a special uh, sound to it. You know, like each note has like some some kind of uh, uh, feeling to it. So I thought for this project. You know, he would be the right person to to ask. And, yeah. uh, well, he's playing three songs on the on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, then, while I was uh, sort of getting into the blues and you know reading about it, I thought, ah, actually, uh, lyrics are really important in blues. Yeah, definitely. it's a big part of it. These stories, and also in those days, uh, sort of. Uh, Lyrics would be a way to to ex- express your 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 emotions, but you couldn't say those things directly mm-hmm. because you know you, you might get fired or you know or, or send off. Yeah. So they would always have like this uh, these these uh, words in disguise. Yeah. So they, they would say, oh, um, "Feeling really bad," and and then talk about something that happened, but you would have to know. The kind of words they use to know what is it, what is yeah, it's like a code language. It would be yeah. a code language. So I thought I want to try to you know as a as a uh, tribute to to those kind to that music, mm-hmm. write lyrics like that. Okay. And then I was thinking, actually, should I sing that myself? And I thought it's nicer to ask uh, to have a woman sing that towards me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Um, well, Elina Gemerts, I thought, was the right one to do that. Mm-hmm. And I like her also because she's not like, she's more a blues singer than a jazz singer. Yeah. She really is in that between blues and jazz. And as you can hear on the on the recording, and maybe we'll play that as well, mm-hmm. um, she is more to- uh, storytelling than singing, actually. Yeah. And, and that's what I thought would be good you know, mm-hmm. you not not have someone just sing a song, but really tell a story. Yeah. Well, uh, while I was uh, sort of yeah thinking about those things, then I decided to ask uh, my good friend uh, Rory Ronde, mm-hmm. uh, who I play with also with uh, Newco Collective, a yeah. big band, sure. to play some guitar to add some some you know uh, rhythm and blues kind of bluesy. Uh, yeah. licks in between yeah um, also with the sort of question and answering 
things that suit that kind of music. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, if I get it right, you also wrote the lyrics. Uh, yeah. Is that a yeah. new process for you, or have you always like written? Have you always written songs as songs? I guess. <laughs> Well, I've tried it, but uh, until now, this is like the first time that I actually put it on records. Okay, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, I'm first of all a saxophone player, and I never thought that I would really sing because saxophone is my instrument. Mm-hmm. But then in this case, there was a like a, a real direct reason to write some lyrics for this project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't say I would never do it again, but I wouldn't <laughs> be the first one to do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's always challenging. I mean, I, I feel like... As a vocalist, you kind of get lyric writing lessons, right, at the conservatory because it, yeah. it's, it's part of what you're expected to do. But the idea of a lyricist as a composer is something that we kind of don't have as so much anymore, I feel like. In, right. Right. in jazz music, like versus the way it was probably at the time of the idea of writing a Broadway song that will then be both, you know, that's, yeah. um, that's kind of a lost art maybe. I don't yeah, know. yeah. And then uh, another thing that, so I, I read in the press materials regarding the album that uh, you guys did a certain amount of work with, with producer Al Schmidt. Is that, that correct? Yeah. Um, that's, that, well, first of all, that's amazing. I don't know if everybody is actually aware of, of who Al Schmidt is, but he's like one of these absolutely legendary producers. He got like something like 20 Grammys or something. He worked with, I don't know, like Quincy Jones and Ray Charles and like, uh, well, yeah, pretty much... You name it, he worked with them. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about, and what like what exactly was his involvement? Yeah. So he's he's an engineer and a producer, mm-hmm. and uh, like you said, he, he I think he won as a producer and engineer most uh, Grammys more than anyone. Yeah. And he's uh, most known for his uh, recording style, and then he will always record. Well, he's he's really good at recording to tape. Right yeah. away to tape, so mm-hmm. without editing. And while he's recording, he also mixes yeah. that right away, which is, we thought it, it's really for this album, uh, the kind of music it is. Mm-hmm. We thought it would be a, a great experiment to to try this, to record things and have it uh, on tape without any editing. You know, yeah. that's, for mus- musicians in these days, this is kind of scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing you can change about it. And in theory, of course, we can change anything. Yeah. But we just thought it's sort of that kind of energy where, and also the roughness it needs, you know, that uh, it would really work out. And to work with him was, yeah, really very special uh, for me, a dream come true. Yeah. Uh, he had some really great microphones as well uh, for saxophone, uh, Neumann uh, tube mics. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that also as because like all of us, we also record ourselves. Yeah. And most of us are really into close miking because close miking gives you most direct sound and then you can edit it a lot. Yeah. He did it totally the opposite way. He had all microphones really far. So actually he put me like uh, one meter from the microphone. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and then also the drum mics, were he had like two... Um, also tube mics as overhead yeah, uh, for the drums. Mm-hmm. And they were also very far. And, and um, yeah, Al Smith is already, you know, he's, he's not the youngest anymore. Yeah, sure, he's in his late 80s or something, he's right? in his late 80s, yeah. but he climbed on a ladder. And to put these <laughs> microphones exactly at the right angle, and, you know, if you see how... How carefully he did this! Yeah. But the, the the interesting thing is he would put he would place them without checking through the monitors or anything. He would mm-hmm. just place them based on his experience. Yeah. And once he placed them, he placed every microphone himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then cabling was done by assistants. Yeah. Then he would go to the control room, uh, also like a, you know a vintage uh, Neve. Uh, yeah. table so <laughs> you know it's all vintage there yeah and he would he recorded two tracks um, and that's it okay yeah. and didn't change anything well he did replace one microphone because it was broken but okay. this whole setup he put it there without listening yeah uh, of course you know this had to be uh, directly to tape because um 
we, we, you know, the microphones were so far from the instruments that uh, in my microphone only was already a complete mix of the whole band. Yeah, so there's no point in, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But, and, and so, uh, so he recorded two tracks and then you, you tracked other stuff somewhere else. Like, first of all, like where, where did you guys record it actually? Um, so we recorded with Al in Amsterdam in uh, the Abbey Road Institute. Yeah. And the reason uh, for that was that actually I was um, invited by Abbey Road Institute, mm -hmm. which is like a school for engineers, yeah, yeah, private sure. school for engineers. And they uh, invite engineers from all over the world to give yeah. like workshops. Mm -hmm. So uh, our chance to work with him was really because he was there. Yeah, sure. And he needed a band and he needed a, a band that he could record uh, to, to track without uh, that, that would fit the music with yeah. the you know the 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 tube microphones and yeah, the sure. old fashioned recording methods yeah. and well we were the right band for him yeah. to do that with cool yeah. and so then the the rest of the album you recorded somewhere else or in similar circumstances like how did you yeah then then later recorded recorded the rest and tried to stay in that sound yeah i was going to say uh, that it it doesn't I can't say that I noticed it, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't jump out at you as like, oh, wait, this is some other day somewhere else in a different different circumstances. Right. So. Yeah. So actually, we 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 did. Um, so uh, with the mixing and the mastering, we did really try to get the two of them um, together. And interesting thing, of course, is that the tracks from L were just the way they were. We yeah. couldn't change it, and you don't want to change that. No, of course. Uh, the rest, of course, we had a bit more possibilities to change. We could have really tweaked them. You yeah. know, uh, tweaking is like changing, uh, you know, the frequencies. Here yeah, and there, yeah, put sure. some low, some some high. Yeah. So we we sort of tweaked that two words. We had to make it a little bit warmer. Yeah, uh, sure. To get to that sound. But um, yeah, it was a great opportunity to work yeah. with him. And had you had you recorded straight to tape before? Was this the first time you did that, or? Well, of course, I recorded already in the early '90s. Okay, um, when we when we still recorded to to final. Yeah, and then I did. I actually, I sort of the whole transition to digital was during during my my yeah, recording sure. years. Yeah. Uh, so at first, I remember uh, recording at. Um, Studios like uh, Le Roi uh, 150, Studio 150 mm -hmm. in yeah. Amsterdam, uh, Wisselord yeah. uh, on on the SSL tables, the the analog SSL yeah, tables, yeah, yeah. Uh, which give give like a great sound. And then at first we would record the music to tape, uh, uh, 48 track tapes, mm -hmm. and after that we would record it digitally. And then it was really at a certain point people thought, hey, this the digitally sounds really different than a, than the analog. It was really like yeah. a, a world of difference. And at first people thought, wow, all these possibilities put some more high. Yeah. And so certain, suddenly, somewhat, some yeah, I guess we we all thought, oh, this is too much high. Yeah. And then what? Of course, the next phase was when we would uh, put the digital audio through the tape, mm -hmm. and then put it back to the hard, hard, hard drive. Yeah, sure. So you just like make a loop to yeah. to recapture that yeah. warmth somehow. And now, of course, we have actually a way of getting that sort of analog. Now we know yeah. why that analog sound, what it does. Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, we have people are sitting behind computer monitors with a picture of a, of, of a tape recorder on it <laughs> right. that does a bunch of processing yeah. that makes it sound like you sent yeah. it through a tape. And, and you can, uh, now you can choose the tape recorder you want. Yeah, and, exactly. Like we've, we've reached a point where the nostalgia for that sound and also just the, I, I wonder where that comes from actually, whether it's, whether it's an intrinsic quality of like the warmth that's there or whether it's just, there is a certain amount of nostalgia, which just tells us, Hey, like, this is what I remember hearing and therefore, and this is what, especially when you're dealing with jazz music, like all of the great records that we love were recorded in these kinds of ways. Like if you look mm -hmm. at the way Rudy Van Gelder used to record, like that's, it's very clear that there's a charm to that sound, but I wonder if it's part of the nature of the sound or whether it's just the, the association that we have in our mind with it. 
Ja, ja totally true. Ja, en, en uh, well, Rudy van Gelder is of course a legend. And his style of recording was really, you know... Um, yeah, we, we all love these records. Yeah. But of course, we also love the records because of the people playing on it. Yeah, sure. Uh, because sometimes if you listen to these recordings, it's like, yeah, this is great. You, do, you wouldn't want to change anything about it. But it's kind of strange that you don't hear the piano yeah. uh, during the saxophone solo. And then when the piano solo, solo starts, suddenly yeah, someone else uh, yeah. you know, puts them in. Yeah. Uh, so there's some things where, you know, it was great in those days and... We love it, but you sort of now it doesn't really make sense to record that way anymore. No, sure, it's true. I mean, I don't know. I did it one time. I I had a recording, like I had a record date in Latvia. Like there's like a, a company there that they sort of have this nostalgia attitude that they only want to. It's a label that only wants to release on vinyl, and they only want to record to tape. And it was kind of fascinating because there was like the there was two engineers there, and one guy was like the like you know, uh, ex-Soviet master of of recording to tape. And the other guy was the young guy who's hip and records everyone. And it was a really strange experience, like to 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 record in that way. Like, I don't know, my generation just does not have that. The sense of we cannot go and change any of this. Um, and also I wonder, like, I wonder if the audience nowadays has adapted to the idea of everything being perfect simply because it can be. Um, I wonder if there's there's a bit of a problem there that we're running into. Right, um, yeah. Yeah, well, and uh, of course, you know, the, the challenge here is, you know, uh, what, what, what's perfect, mm-hmm. what's perfect, but but uh, sort of, it's, it's really different from, like, say, in the 50s when you were recording and you had, like, limited time and also, you had, like, the tape, tape would run off. Yeah, of course. So sometimes you really have this that suddenly they have to go to the bridge or whatever. Yeah. Because there's not <laughs> more space. And also on, of course, these old vinyl records, they had like a limit um, yeah. play, playing time. Yeah. So sometimes it will cut off a piece of the song yeah. at really unlogical you know, yeah. uh, point. <laughs> but the, the thing is, of course, they had to do that mm-hmm. because of technology. Uh, now we don't have to do that. So it would be sort of strange to sort of make those kind of choices that they made yeah. just because you're thinking, well, then it sounds like in those days. Yeah, it's authentic to the style. Right, and the, right. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, I think maybe it's more about the playing that I'm interested in, whether we have a like strange perception of what is and is not perfect nowadays. Like, especially when you're dealing with jazz and improvised music, it... The idea of mistakes being valuable, um, I think, is kind of underappreciated. Like, it, uh, I don't know if you listen back to say, like, the super famous Sunday at the Village Vanguard recordings of of Bill Evans trio, the fact that there is a bunch of like plates being dropped, and you can hear that in one of the bass solos, somebody broke a glass, and that you also hear that the bass solo reacts to that and changes because of it. Like, it's something that we obviously have lost now like if if during a recording session somebody broke a glass you would just say stop and start again now yeah yeah, um, yeah. and that's something that is yeah. also intrinsic to the music right because we yeah. the idea is that we're trying to capture a moment yeah. in an honest way yeah um and so yeah uh, I, now, I find it, if 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 a glass drops in a recording you're you're pretty sure that they edited into yeah somebody recording. went and recorded <laughs> a glass breaking in yeah. a in a like small booth somewhere yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, actually there's the, to 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 uh, you know follow up your story, uh, there's a recording that that the Plocktones, another band I'm in. Yeah, uh, we made a record for Challenge Records a couple of years ago, and uh, for that we we recorded ten concerts live, and mm-hmm. we took the the well our favorite uh, tracks from there. Yeah, and there's like one ballad that we play in Beauforthuis in Auschwitz, mm-hmm. yeah. and on a really silent moment, there is a baby crying in the audience. And it's really <laughs> like... <laughs> and at first we, we, we thought, how ah, can we take that baby off? Because yeah. it's like someone is, you know, being mistreated in some way. <laughs> we couldn't really get it off nicely. You know? yeah. Then we thought, why don't we put some reverb on the, on, on on the, the baby? baby. Yeah. And now it's really like the silence and then the baby goes in and... You know, it's true that it adds something to the music as well because what happens after that, you hear some people go like, <laughs> yes, yeah. people are reacting to that. Then 
what we do after that is, of course, uh, you know, a result of that. Yeah. So you would take the baby off. It, the music wouldn't be logical after that because. Yeah, sure. Like the, and it, and again, the idea of recording live is is interesting because it does. Um, it does force you to just embrace what happened. And, and I mean, obviously you can take, uh, like you say, if you take it over 10 concerts, then maybe, you know, you've got a selection of takes that you can pick from. But at yes. the same time, the the value of, I feel like a lot of the value of the music that we make is in the idea of this is happening now and it's not going to happen again, or at least when it happens again, it won't be the same at all. And therefore, it's valuable to see it. And then creating a pristine product that is like crystal clear and exact, and 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 that you've kind of chopped it up to pieces, just feels somewhat antithetical to that. Mm. Like it, it's it's a different yeah. process, and it's a beautiful process, and it's becoming something that people are doing, you know. But it it's interesting to go back to these kind of styles yeah. of recording for that. And maybe also huh, that. Uh, it depends on the kind of music you make. You know, mm -hmm. if you're making like a pop music production, you might choose to really uh, get everything exactly as you planned. Yeah, of course. And if you're a jazz musician, maybe it's your you know your your, your goal to let things not go as planned. Mm -hmm. You know, because it would be super boring if if you have like uh, uh, written out parts for everyone and yeah. everyone would just play exactly. I mean, we're not used to that, right? No, we sure. want the piano player to say, um, you know, yeah, could I play this like this? Or he just surprises you during the concert to play totally different chords and the bass player goes along. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we want. To yeah, yeah, the idea of playing on the knife's edge like that. The, right. the idea of risk. Right, right. risk. And then sometimes something really beautiful happens and sometimes, well, it's like a very beautiful mistake. Yeah, sure. I feel like we should probably talk a bit about like all the other things that you're up to. You're obviously a really busy guy, and that you have a ton of projects. Like the the new record with the Preacher Man is only one of a ton of things. Um, I know, for example, you're the artistic director of a band called the Amsterdam Funk Orchestra. Um, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Could, can you maybe speak to that a bit, like shortly? What what you guys are up to? Where? Yeah. So um, actually, Amsterdam Funk Orchestra is rehearsing. Um, uh, weekly yeah. in Amsterdam Q Factory mm -hmm. and we're always working on several projects and the nice thing about it for me is uh, as a musician uh, that I have something to work towards every week because I, every week I have to keep them busy and also yeah. you know surprise them with things mm -hmm. so for me it's also a chance to write a lot of arrangements something that I've always enjoyed doing, writing yeah. arrangements for a large ensemble. And uh, to think of projects, so I'm thinking in projects. So we did a couple of concerts. We did like a theater program uh, about Ella Fitzgerald mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Denise Jana. Mm -hmm. And we played uh, Spuitheater, uh, uh, Stadschouwberg in Amsterdam. We yeah. were on The World Draait Door as well. Yeah. And... Um, did this project with Big Band, which was really super nice to do that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's like forties, uh, fifties uh, jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, then we did projects with Anton Goudsmit. Uh, I wrote some arrangements of his music. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this year we did a project with Benjamin Herman. Yeah. In the okay. Sugar Factory, which was super cool. Mm -hmm. And. The, the the idea next year is really to do three different projects uh, with all with a theme. Yeah. And I was thinking about a tribute to, uh, um, well, the godfather of, of funk music, James Brown. Sure, yeah. Uh, Fela Kuti, yeah. which is like the African, West African, uh, African funk. Yeah, sure. And a project which we thought, well, it would be funny too to have to funk up some music that's not necessarily funky yeah and then uh, it would be Ephraim's guilty pleasure okay <laughs> the, 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 the music I listen to but I actually normally don't want to share it with you guys <laughs> so well, what, can some, you give any examples of that like uh, what's a guilty pleasure yeah it James last okay yeah so that's really guilty pleasure yeah 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 cool that, that that's exciting um I, I look forward to 
to hearing more from that. Uh, is there any other stuff? Like, I don't know if the plot tones are up to anything in particular. Or, uh, you, obviously, people may be most familiar with you with those guys because you guys have been going on for how long now? Like, it's uh, well, we had like uh, eleven years. Uh, yeah, there was an anniversary thing. Anniversary yeah. tour a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've been playing for fifteen years. Yeah, as plot tones. Before that, we already played together under the name. Um, Goudsmit, Trujillo, Vierdagvink. Yeah. Our surnames. Sure. And Anton, of course, and me go way back because we studied together uh, in Amsterdam at the school. Yeah. At the um, conservatory. Yeah. Um, we're actually in the process of writing music for a new city. And mm-hmm. as most people know, uh, most of the music is, is Anton's original uh, material. Yeah. And the plan is next year to record... And have like uh, new material. In the meantime, we have some concerts coming up. Yeah, uh, around the country. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's obviously going to be links to all the stuff that you're up to on, on the website, so people can go check it out there. Uh, is there any other stuff that you want to mention? Stuff? That, I don't know if you're busy as a sideman at all, or if there's any projects. Well, uh, so uh, this this recording um, uh, with the preacher man is yeah. released on on Zenith Records. Yeah, um, and uh, John Weyers who's uh, the owner of Sanders Records, mm-hmm. a good personal friend of mine as well. He uh, also actually invited me to do a project uh, with uh, uh, Michiel Stekelenburg, who's oh, yeah. a, a guitar player yeah. and uh, also yeah, a good personal friend of mine. And um, the idea is to do in, 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 in November to... to uh, do some concerts, yeah, okay, and then um, also record a CD um, and release that on 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 Zenith's yeah, uh, on his level, uh, yeah. records label. Okay, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, finally, uh, I did warn you about this. I always like to end the show by asking my guests to uh, record uh, recommend something that. Uh, the listeners might check out something that you found inspiring, something interesting. Uh, it can be just about anything from a book to a movie to whatever comes to mind. Yeah, well, I, I would like to then uh, recommend a book uh, which is connected to uh, the CD Blue from The Preacher Man yeah. uh, because it really inspired me. Yeah. And uh, it also was sort of the basis for for um, uh, making this album. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a book... Uh, called uh, Blues from the Delta. Okay. And it's by William Ferris. Yep. And it's really like an iconic book. Um, actually, uh, Ferris wrote this book as his thesis. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's a historian, actually. He's not a mm-hmm. musician, historian. And uh, he was one of the first people that went to the Delta and spoke to the people that mm-hmm. played that original blues and recorded them as well. Okay, yeah. And as a... a why the American? This was, of course, special. In those days, uh, we're talking about the 50s, 60s, yeah. it's really special that white people would be interested uh, to to see black music as an arts form. Yeah, sure. As more than entertainment. It was always entertainment to have uh, uh, black musicians play jazz or blues music and listen to yeah. it as a party, mm-hmm. but to see it as really as important... Yeah. A work of art that yeah. was like new and uh, yeah this book is really interesting yeah cool and again there'll be links to that as well on the website so people can find it there uh, Ephraim thanks so much for being on the show my pleasure stick around to hear more music from Ephraim and the preacher men at the very end of the show Many thanks to Christian and Andres, my fellow members of KTRO, for providing the intro and outro music. Please subscribe to Sound of the Moment wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. That way you will be updated whenever new episodes are released. Leave a favorable review or star rating in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as they now call it. That really does help a lot. It does make the algorithms work in my favor, and that way other listeners are more likely to find it. Speaking of other listeners, if you know anybody who would be interested in this kind of stuff, please let them know, any friends of yours who uh, like to listen to jazz musicians just talk for a while, uh, that then, uh, yeah, let them know.
Go to patreon.com slash sound of the moment if you would like to make a monthly donation to help me keep the show up and running. That is uh, incredibly helpful and the smallest amount really does make a huge difference to me. It helps me to cover hosting and all of the costs that are incurred by running this kind of a show. Many thanks to all of my current Patreon donators who already support me that way. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Facebook page for Sound of the Moment. And you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. Let's end with another piece from Efraim Trujillo and the Preacher Man. This one is called Into the Blue. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. Got me into the blue